You are listening to The Exchange on Siouxland Public Media. I'm Mary Hartnett. On the program today, we hear from an Afghan refugee who has made Sioux City his home. And we talk with the organizer of Downtown Live, Brent Stockton, about what we can expect in live entertainment in downtown Sioux City this summer. Also, we talk today on the program about well-being for ourselves and the people of the world. Renowned author and scholar Bruce Feiler gives some advice about how we can ride out the oncoming waves of change in our careers as we get older and how to bring more balance to our lives. And as Iowa's population grows older, a lot of residents are concerned about aging well. We talk with a doctor who's been working to improve our lives as we grow older. And promoter of wealth equity Chuck Collins talks about his first novel. It takes a personal look at a woman who takes her advocacy for climate change to extreme lengths. But first, a look at the state and local news. Iowa's resignation from a bipartisan group that helped states keep their voter rolls up to date became official at the end of last week, and it's still not clear how Iowa's top election officials will go forward. Republican Secretary of State Paul Pate announced about three months ago Iowa would leave the Electronic Registration Information Center, also known as ERIC. It also allows member states to share data about voters who move or die to help clean voter lists. Pate's office said they would explore new options for getting voter data. Three months later, his office has no updates to share. Amanda Waski is the Republican president of the Iowa State Association of County Auditors. And she says local election officials will still be able to get the information needed to maintain voter records. She's confident in an accurate election database. However, Democratic Story County Auditor Lucy Martin is not so sure. She says leaving Eric is disappointing. And also Eric automated some work and saved time, which could now be replaced by a slow process involving physical mail. And landowners who oppose a proposed carbon capture pipeline in Iowa are upset with the schedule of hearings that will decide whether regulators approve its route across the state. The Iowa Utilities Board announced last week it will begin hearings on Summit Carbon Solutions' proposal in late August instead of October as previously planned. The board must decide whether to grant eminent domain to build the pipeline on more than 1,000 parcels of land where landowners have not signed agreements with the company. Anna Ryan, a former attorney with the Iowa Office of Consumer Advocate, questioned whether the board staff would really have time to review details of all those cases by then. That's just a massive quantity of of employee hours that the utilities board would have a hard time filling under any circumstances, but certainly to try to get to that point before August 22nd is uh, going to be shortcutting things. The utilities board says it's moving landowner testimony to the beginning of the hearing process to avoid conflicts with the harvest season. But a landowner who is against the new timeline says opponents will have to rush to find legal representation and prepare arguments. According to Summit, 70% of landowners have signed voluntary easements approving construction. And Republican Congressman Zach Nunn is introducing legislation to improve broadband access in the state's rural areas. The bipartisan legislation would authorize the U.S. Department of Agriculture to be permanently offering loans and grants to improve access to broadband Internet across the country. Representative Nunn says better broadband access can do things like help alleviate the state's critical nursing shortage by allowing nurses to connect with patients remotely and on a more flexible schedule. According to research firm Broadband Now, Iowa ranks 33rd in the country for access to broadband internet. And the Sioux City Council on Monday green-lighted facade improvements for historic 4th Street building. 
The council authorized a certificate of appropriateness for the former ALF's manufacturing building at 105 4th Street. The economic development arm of the Winnebago Tribe of Nebraska, or Ho-Chunk, purchased the building in 2021, along with three other buildings in one of downtown's most popular districts. Certificates of appropriateness are required by city code for proposed additions or modifications to buildings within Sioux City's historic districts. The building with a brick-and-stone edifice was built in 1890 by the Boston Investment Company in the Richardsonian Romanesque style. Its first occupant was the Sioux City Upholstering Company. ALF's manufacturing moved into the building around 1922. You're listening to The Exchange. I'm Mary Hartnett. The Taliban took over Afghanistan almost two years ago. At one time, 600 refugees called Iowa home, including right here in Siouxland. Siouxland Public Media Sheila Brummer introduces us to one young man learning from one of our community's leaders. By watching his skills on a calculator, it's evident Sioux City Mayor Bob Scott knows a thing or two about taxes. This is my 50th year, which means I'm old. This is, I started in 1972, right out of college. Scott, a longtime owner of a tax-preparing business, mentors 25-year-old Noor. So Bob has hired me as his trainee accountant. Accountants deal with numbers, and Noor shares some significant digits. 16th of September, 2022. That's when Noor landed in Sioux City. Uh, I got off the plane. I looked around the airport. I was like, I said, I, I want to leave this place because it didn't look as much as as big as California, as big as Virginia, because they're the famous estates. Before leaving Afghanistan, Noor spent a restless year hiding out in his room studying. He assisted U.S. troops for five years, first as a linguist, and then in administrative roles surrounding the aviation supply chain. There were security concerns and safety concerns. I, uh, My father wouldn't let me go out or to, to hang out with my friends because he was afraid, you know, it was the Taliban everywhere. And they could tell from your physical appearance that you must be someone that did some kind of work with the previous government. Mayor Scott heard about Noor and hired him full-time at the beginning of the year. Noor balances work pursuing a master's degree through the University of London. He's uh very smart at learning new things and and uh, there isn't a task that he hasn't tried that we've asked him to do so we're very pleased with him and are excited to hopefully keep him around. Nor enjoys his position, colleagues who like to learn about his culture. Did you know anything about Ramadan and prayings and Islam before I came? A little, a little, um, but not as much. Nor enjoys his position, colleagues but admits his real love surrounds the arts, acting or painting. However, people rank higher than personal pursuits. In life, I don't think you can follow your passion all the time. So I have a family of 15 members that I have to support back in Afghanistan. I have to pay off my bills in America. So in order to, to, to get a better life or a better future, I have to learn it, I think. Noor's new journey includes guidance from the top. It is quiet, 
and peaceful and this is why I stayed in Sioux City and I mean I, I, I didn't even dream of getting a job with the mayor of Sioux City in his accounting office and working with, for Bob was taking me towards a better and brighter future. And the relationship between mentor and employee goes both ways. We're still learning about his culture as he's still learning about ours and uh, but the one thing we all have in common is we want to do better for our families and he certainly is trying to do that to bring some of his family to America. Nor not only works for his loved ones back in Afghanistan, but for his new home. Being a businessman and being a professional accountant I mean, and just being useful to American society. For Siouxland Public Media News, I'm Sheila Brummer. Siouxland Public Media reached out to state and local officials to find out how many refugees live in Iowa and Woodbury County. An exact number was not available at this time. Also, to protect Noor's identity, we only used his first name in this story. The city of Sioux City recently established a new award to recognize individuals with a deep and ongoing commitment to social justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion. The first person honored was Victor Diaz Galindo. Diaz Galindo has served as a Spanish teacher at West High School and advisor for the LGBTQAI plus student organization. He was also a staff member of Western Iowa Tech Community College. The Sioux City native talked to Sheila Brummer about his designation, his thoughts on local industry and what we can do to enhance our community. I'm very humbled and honored to be the first recipient of this amazing award and I think it's something that definitely deserves to be recognized. I mean there's so many amazing leaders that do inclusion work in many different capacities right. The capacity I chose was to kind of work with the decision makers our city council and um, work with other leaders and collaborate and kind of generate conversation and collect data to understand our community a little bit more, you know, and um, I'm just, I'm, I'm very honored. I think it's something that's so beautiful to do to um, highlight um, individuals in our community. And I hope we, um, as a collective, start doing it more and more. And what does inclusion mean to you? Part of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion work, right? Um, they all have different viewpoints, right? Diversity allows us to acknowledge the different um, communities that um, we interact with every day and like equity like provides access to different opportunities right but when you have access to these let's say um, jobs or access to these resources not often do you have a voice when you go into these spaces so what inclusion does inclusion it, it includes your voice you have a, you have a spot at the table but now you have a voice at the table as well um it's kind of even the playing field a little bit more and inclusion is just a really great strength to have in general as a community. I think inclusion is, if everyone's included, everyone's happy. We reduce the brain drain that we have in Iowa, um, especially in the city. People want to stay. Um, and it just becomes a better overall community, I think. When it comes to community, do you think Sioux City is doing a, a good job when it comes to being inclusive to all people? Our community is an anomaly like we, we're not normal right we have a very 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 diverse community just like Storm Lake just like Denison um, and other um, little pockets throughout Iowa where immigration has been very like very big having our own committee the inclusive city advisory committee is a really great step forward I think there's a lot of like organizations that support the community in so many different ways I think what needs to happen most is that we need to streamline what all these resources are doing we need to collaborate we need to work together so I think the city is growing in this, and I think that's really good, because otherwise, if we weren't, then that would be a problem. But I hope the city's making a great strides to move forward. 
How about the state of Iowa? Because I know the legislature's enacted some new laws in the last year that maybe aren't as inclusive when it comes to yeah. different ideas and different people. Yeah, well, currently I'm a teacher at West High School. I worked there for two years. Next year, um, I'll be moving elsewhere. But I think what's important about those laws is that we understand that they're more of a scare tactic, right? I think they're more of like a, here's a comment, here's what I'm weighing in. As like a legislator, here's what I believe, and I'm gonna put this forward. So as a state, I feel like it's more of a statement that they wanna make about the communities that they want to see and have within Iowa, which I think is a little ironic because a lot of these um, communities like Denison, for example, and Storm Lake are were decaying communities because um, they didn't have many resources and the population was going down for many years until immigration, the influx of immigration, and then a lot of immigrants, what they do to these communities, they, they revitalize these communities. What used to be an old, um, a, a shoe uh, store, right? It's probably now, um, let's say, a Latinx or Asian or African restaurant. It's still the same building, but what's nice is that there's um, more money in the area, right? But what I'm what I'm saying is these laws, um, they are working to divide the community a little bit more and control um, people at the margins of oppression. And it's not fair because they deal. We deal with so much in in so many different ways, and we're already so different within Iowa that it's. I think there should be a higher priority to the legislature. You were teaching at West High School. You were also part of the TRIO program here at Western Iowa Tech Community College mm-hmm. and the Inclusive Sioux City Advisory yep. Committee. You're going to be moving, though. You're you're en route to a new city. Um, why did you decide to, to leave Siouxland to move to Iowa City? It was a really difficult decision. It was very bittersweet. Um, I love Sioux City because it's where I'm from. It's where I grew up. And the community has helped me grow in so many ways. But I think what Iowa City is going to offer me is um, a different opportunity to grow as a Spanish educator. With the University of Iowa being there, I am looking to apply for different opportunities um, abroad. Um, so um, it's going to be very helpful to be there. But also, I think the I think the culture is a little bit different, where um, it's going to help me grow as a professional and emotionally and socially. I'll be able to feel a little bit less stressed. Does that make sense? Um, so it was kind of like I had to like look out for myself for a bit, but I think um, the thing about leaving Sioux City, especially post-pandemic, is that we're connected in so many different ways. So I'm I'm going to continuously work with other leaders um, here to like um, if they need me or if they need support, I'm here to organize. And I mean I've been working with the Latinx Iowa project, and it's this project where they it's Latinos from across the state came together, collected data about our different communities that have um, a prominent presence of Latinos. And we collected data about housing, about healthcare, about education um, and immigration and stuff like that. And um, we looked at all these different variables and all these different factors. And we have this really great report um, that will be released soon. And um, I think it's that collective nature that we have, especially with the internet, that um, even I'm going to Iowa City, I'll still be in Iowa. And I think like um, there's so many great leaders here too. And I think the New Zealand um, prime minister said it best, is a good leader knows when to sit down and give someone, give another Latinx person, for example, in my case, um, the the opportunity to be on this great committee. Does that make sense? And I think um, I'm going to be gone, but I think it's going to be um, a great opportunity to keep collaborating. Anything else you'd like to say? Anything else you think our listeners should know? Well, I think any work that you do is important um, for inclusion, diversity, or equity. I think just remember that you're doing the work. Um, We always compare ourselves, especially with social media, right, and what other people are doing. But, I mean, you have to do things within your capacity, your ability, um, and within your 
own strength. There's never a good place to start than to just start. Be patient with yourself and keep fighting the good fight. That's Victor Diaz-Galindo, who received Sioux City's first Inclusive Excellence Award. He also credited Sioux City's Inclusion Liaison with bringing greater awareness and inclusivity to Siouxland. listening to The Exchange, I'm Mary Hartnett. In today's evolving world of work, a lot of us find ourselves having to change course mid-career more than once. But that can be a good thing, according to author Bruce Feiler. The writer of seven New York Times bestsellers has a new book out called The Search, Finding Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World. Feiler says it's a roadmap for finding meaning and purpose at work, based on insights drawn from hundreds of life stories from all vocations and backgrounds. Filer found that some of us, especially those who've been in the work world for a while, can have a hard time straying from the path we were set upon back in college. You make a decision at 21, you then do it for the next 50 years, and you are on a path, right? A track, a ladder. And if you think of all of those words, what are they? They are linear. They are rigid, right? And you get off the path. You get off. Maybe you want to have children, right? Maybe you want to change what you do. Maybe you want to... If you get off the escalator, you ain't never getting back on the escalator. Like that is what we were told. And that's absurdly limiting. You say that people today are going to have a lot of changes throughout their career. So it's very different than it was in the past. So the average person today will have 20, as you say, of what I call work quakes in their lives. That's every two and a half years. So what is a work quake? It's a jolt, right? It's a disruption when you rethink or reimagine what you do. But here's what's interesting. Women go through them more than men. (laughs) Younger generations go through them more. Diverse workers go through them more than non-diverse workers. So what that means is the number is only going to grow over time. And what I think maybe actually the signature sort of piece of data from the search is that more than half of these don't start it in the workplace at all. They start in our lives, right? In our families, we have a health challenge, right? Or we just have a change of mind. Half of people who change jobs change occupations. So the point is, there's no longer a penalty for getting off the ladder because there ain't no ladder anymore. What I've introduced is this toolkit for how to identify what is it you want to do today. Well, why don't we talk about the toolkit then? I think that'd be most helpful for people. Okay, so let's just say you're in one of those moments. What do you do? Often you get stuck, right? You get writer's block trying to write your own story, as I like to think about it. Um, But I would say the number one lesson that I've learned, Mary, is that the people who are happiest and most fulfilled when they are in a work quake, they don't just climb, they also dig. And what I mean by that, we're told, you know, bigger office, higher floor, better salary. That, that's the metric that we're told that we should evaluate our lives by. But the real metric is inside of you. And you have to do what I call a meaning audit, right? What I call personal archaeology, where you go and go on almost like a treasure hunt in your own life story, trying to figure out, you know, what really, what is most important to me? So you ask a very simple question, like, I'm in a moment in my life when? That's just one of these 21 questions. I'm in a moment in my life when, you know what? 
I want to prioritize uh, family because I'm a new parent, right? Or I have aging relatives and I want to be closer to them. So that means, well, maybe I want to move or maybe I want to not have a job where I travel so much. Or maybe I'm in a moment in my life when... I want to pay off my student loans, or in my case, I'm about to send two kids to college, right? So I got my eye on the bottom line. So maybe I want to prioritize, you know, income or benefits for a time. Or you know what? I've been doing the same job for a long time. And I'm moment I'm in a moment in my life when I want to give back. I want to be closer to my community. I want to make this, you know, the world a better place. Nine out of 10 people, nine out of 10 say they will give up of uh, up to a quarter of their life earnings in order to do work for meaning. Uh, that is an astonishing, and that's a study from Harvard, an astonishing thing that where we are now is fewer people are searching merely for work, more people are searching for work with meaning. I've talked to a lot of people who've written books in the last year about, you know, the working and careers and what's important to you. And uh, talking to some people who wrote a book about a class they hold about how do you flourish in life? It sounds very similar to what you're saying, because you have to think about what's important to you and how you how how life changes. One of the things that became surprising to me is, is that what, what's been missing from this conversation, what's been missing is a kind of diversity. We have been limiting the people that we talk to. Um, and they said that this book, the search, you know, kind of adds to the literature by diversity, not just of background, and there's plenty of that, but also diversity of occupation, like people who do different kinds of things. Most of the kind of career space has been focused mostly on people on the coasts and in white collar jobs. And a lot of people like that you're talking to and with every day have a different life experience. I talked to this woman who was actually who grew up in uh, in central Iowa, and she actually went to play basketball in Ireland and got a job in, 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 in bond trading. It was actually making a lot of money. She walked away from that job to move back to Iowa to become a, a farmer selling roasted crickets because she wanted to be close. She wanted to be an entrepreneur. She's like, I just was moving piles of money around. And you mentioned something that really resonated when I read it, that a lot of what we learn about work is what we learn from our parents, a lot of whom were very hardworking. Well, it turns out two thirds of us say that the number one upside we learn from our parents is the value of hard work. And that certainly is true in my case. Um, I tell a story at the opening of the search about going every Saturday growing up in Savannah, Georgia, to work in my family's office with my grandfather and take payments because my, my family was in low income housing. And when he got older, and when he got sick, 40 years ago, this spring, a month before I was going to graduate from high school, um, he took a pistol and shot himself because if he couldn't work, he couldn't live. And so what did I learn from that? To have a more diversified life. And when you ask people the downsides of work they learned from their family, um, the number one upside was uh, the value of work. The number one downside was the, was the worry of overwork followed by unhappiness, followed by strain on your family. So you see in those answers, younger workers, they want to work, but they also want balance and they want meaning uh, and they want family. And that is a big change. Six in 10 millennials say that well-being at work is more important to them than it was to their boomer parents. We are in a generational change led by younger workers, women, um, and diverse workers. I look at my grandparents and my, my dad. It was all about sacrificing. 
I opened the book, The Search, as you know, with the story of a woman who grew up in Baldwin City, Kansas, right? A population of a few hundred people. She did a high school job working in a greenhouse and fell in love with plants and followed, you know, a, a boyfriend who became her husband to San Diego and she was working in a gardening company. Um, and both her mother and her brother died in back-to-back -back car accidents. And she spent so much time flying back and forth to Kansas that her boss hired an assistant. And when she got back, her assistant started groping her. And she said, my mother was in the Marines. And I thought, I don't have to take this anymore. Okay. And she walked away from a well-paying job for a startup selling seeds out of her living room. And she now runs something called the San Diego Seed Company and ships hundreds of thousands of packets from her home. And, you know, I talked to someone who said, you know, when my, on my first job, I was told 90% of your job is going to be, assuming I can say this on the radio, crap, and only 10% is going to be good. And that's what those of us of a certain generation were told. And younger people are not prepared to put up with that anymore. And there are stories in here of people who say, I don't, I don't want to do this. I don't care if it's good on my resume or makes my parents feel good. My definition of success is all about meaning and all about quality of life and frankly, often dignity and freedom and self-respect. And that is the change that's going on. 50 million Americans have quit a job in the last year, not laid off, not fired, quit. That's the highest in history, double what it was 10 years ago. We are in a change. Fewer people are searching merely for work. More and more people are searching for work with meaning. And if that's you, uh, I got a toolkit and a roadmap to help you find that meaning. That was writer Bruce Feiler. He has a new book out called The Search, Finding Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World. He's written several New York Times bestselling books about faith and purpose in our lives. Feiler mentioned how important it is as we get older to change gears and find meaning in our life and work. For Dr. Roseanne Leipzig, her life's work has been to help Americans thrive in their later years, physically, mentally, and emotionally. Her book is called Honest Aging, An Insider's Guide to the Second Half of Life. Leipzig says we need to start educating young people about how to navigate life's challenges from an early age, but that takes time and effort. We have to really show um, role models. When I talk to my patients and they, they're like, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. You're my role model. You need to let people know what you're doing, okay? Um, and I think we really have to be as anti-ageist as we are anti-racist and anti-sexist because we let a lot of people get away with it. <laughs> You know, we are the butt of jokes. If you look at birthday cards, it's kind of sad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> birthday yeah. cards for older people, you know, wedding myself, you know, losing my hair. I'm like a newborn baby, you know, this kind of stuff. And I think we just need to stand up and say that's not ac acceptable, you know, and you can do it in ways that don't necessarily put somebody off, which is what we're all worried about doing. But sometimes you just have to do that. Right. I mean, I see so many uh, older people in the community who maybe they retired from their job they had for, what, 30, 40 years, and now they have a whole other life. Maybe they work part-time, they volunteer, they're out at the nature center, they're doing all these things. And um, I just look at that 
And I see, I see that it is possible to have that vibrant life, but it's, it's a matter if you're not involved in the community and with others, I think it's very hard. I think that's absolutely true. I, I've kind of come up with this little saying for myself. I want an enjoyable, engaged, and meaningful old age. And you need to get yourself out. And I'll tell you, the pandemic made it very hard. Yeah. Because people were by themselves. They were isolated. Um, and getting out of the house is still a problem for people. They're worried. So, and of course, Zoom, which can be so wonderful in so many ways, also keeps us away from actual interactions with people, you know, and right. doing things with people. So I think what you're saying is absolutely true. When you look at it, most of us are going to live into old age with the current numbers, and we're actually going to be in very good health. So I think we need to recognize that while not denying the fact that things are changing. Our bodies are not what they were at 20 or even at 60. In, I think in the book somewhere you say about um, exercise is the one true anti-aging drug. And I started up with a trainer during the pandemic that I had a daughter in my 40s. And I've, I've been very concerned about being healthy and staying healthy. Yes. It has really changed how I feel about myself and, and my fitness level. And I, it's funny. I just thought when I read that, I thought, oh, you're right. It's true. You know, I think that. Um, and I am not a big exerciser, okay, I'll, I will admit that. <laughs> um, I try and get out, I try and walk, but it's really the only thing that has been shown in rigorous trials to improve sleep, cognition, mood, muscle mass, and your muscle mass starts decreasing in your 30s. So you know, bone strength, you don't want to fracture, everybody's seen somebody who's had a hip fracture, you don't want that to happen, and becoming frail. Because the less you do, the less you're going to be able to do. Right. So even if you just walk every day or five days a week and you don't have to do 30 minutes at a time, you can do 10 minutes and then 10 more minutes and then 10 more minutes, or you can start at five minutes and move to 10, you know, whatever you're doing, you will notice the difference it makes. You know, this is um, Alzheimer's Awareness Month and a lot of things most of us are afraid of. One of the things most of us are afraid of of is losing our our mental acuity, becoming less with it, and probably at the far end of that is actually having Alzheimer's. And in the book, you kind of go through things that are normal as you age and maybe some things that show maybe something else is going on. And I think that's helpful. Yeah, I think it's really important to recognize that there are things that happen to everybody as they get older. It may not be at the same time or in the same order, but for all of us, it takes greater effort to learn new things. Okay, I mean, I used to have an osmosis brain, <laughs> you know, things got in very easily. Now I have to pay more attention. I have to repeat it to myself. Sometimes I have to come up with a strategy to try and remember the name of a person, you know, by a feature on their face or something like that. You're less able to multitask. I say over and over again that I don't think anybody multitasks well, <laughs> all right? But as you get older, it really is harder. But if you put your mind on one thing at a time and you're not pressured in terms of how long you have to complete it, we do perfectly fine. Um, your processing takes longer. You know, your little computer in your brain, the reaction time is slower. It's harder to manipulate information in your brain. I am forever thanking GPSs and little calculators 
or the restaurants that tell me what the different tips are because I'm having more trouble doing it. Um, so things like that are, that's normal aging, okay? Um, and you know, retrieving information, that's the thing that everybody worries about. That's that so-called senior moment. You know, the medical term is the tip of the tongue phenomenon. <laughs> you know? I, that, that actor, I know who that is. And you just oh, yeah. get the name or the word and you just can't get the word. And interestingly, if it's a senior moment, if you get the word, it's a lot easier the next time around. You don't lose it, okay? But that's where people really start to get nervous is when they're having trouble word finding. Um, so just to spend a minute on that, because I think it's worth it. There's a real difference between senior moments and dementia. And the difference is for the most part, I mean, there are a lot of different kinds of dementia, but for the most part, whether you store what it is you're trying to remember. So if you have a senior moment and you can get that back out again, whether it's by a cue or a list and you pick it out from the list, it's stored, it's in there. That is not dementia. It's when you really cannot get the word back out again, okay, that we're starting to talk about dementia. Kind of first signs can be consistently having a problem with something you've been able to do before, like handling the finances, you know, dealing with your medications. For some people, it's the darn remote control. You know, suddenly how you use it is difficult. Um, technology has been a problem for a lot of people um, as they get older. Um, so those are things, you know, besides repeating stories, having uh, more driving accidents or errors, things like that, that should make you think, mm, maybe this is something a little more. I heard someone refer to that thing with the word, looking for the word as calling it sticky drawer syndrome. And I always think of that now that I'm <laughs> pulling on the drawer and I'm trying and trying. And then like an hour later, I'm like, that's it. Yeah, it's in that drawer. You just have to open it. <laughs> I know it's there. So I'm glad, you know, it makes you feel better. It's like, wow, I'm not the only one who feels like this because I'll be saying something, trying to find it. And someone younger will say, well, it's blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, of course, right. of course it is. <laughs> oh, darn it. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you're still, you're still writing and you're still doing what you do. Um, do you feel like there's ever a point at which you will, I mean, will you know a point at which you want to stop? Do you see yourself doing this kind of as long as you can? And cause I know you really enjoy what you do. Yeah. I love what I do. And I turned 72 last week. So, you know, I, I know where I am in the progression. All right. Um, at the moment, I think I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing for a while. I have to say, for reasons um, that have more to do with our healthcare system, I may change a little bit in terms of how many patients I see and things of that nature. You know, it's a very broken system. Um, but I like spending, expending more energy trying to get better care for older people. And I do that by teaching a lot. You know, I teach doctors, nurses, I'll, I'll teach anybody who will talk to me, basically. Um, and this book was really that I think we need more information ourselves, okay? Because teaching about older adults is not always um, emphasized in education. And I think it's really important that people know there are things that can be done to give you a better life. You know? So I see myself doing that a lot more. Could you just talk about a few of those things that you could do to give yourself a better life? Oh, without a doubt. The first thing is 
uh, apropos what we were just talking about with memory and all that, uh, sharpen your senses. If it doesn't get into your brain, you cannot get it into your memory. Okay. So I started wearing hearing aids at 60. I love my hearing aids. First of all, I was expending so much energy trying to understand what people were saying. But secondly, um, I really am able to pick up so much more than I was before. So, and I remember better. So get your cataracts done early. You know, we always talk about waiting, waiting, waiting. And we used to need to do that for cataracts because of the uh, seriousness of the operation. But the operation is much easier now, okay? And your life will change. I suddenly realized there were all these blue-eyed people in the world. I had no idea. So things like that, I think it's really important to, to do, okay? Um, I think the exercising we talked about, um, find yourself a network of people to spend time with. And if it's at all possible, have them be people of all ages because you can help younger people and younger people can help you. And it's kind of a little bit of a social insurance, you know, it's helpful. So those are things, I think if you are a drinker, uh, you need to realize that if, as you get older, you get more bang for the buck. So really one drink is what most older people should be having if they're gonna have a drink. Um, and that's true for many medications, okay? You need to decrease the doses of them as people get older. So, you know, those are some of the things that I would suggest doing. That was Dr. Roseanne Leipzig, a physician who's focused on working to improve the lives of seniors in America. Her book is called Honest Aging, an insider's guide to the second half of life. You're listening to The Exchange. I'm Mary Hartnett. Today on the program, we've talked a lot about finding meaning in our life and work. And this next author has spent a lot of time doing just that. Chuck Collins is the co-founder of Wealth for the Common Good. His recently published first novel called Alter to an Erupting Sun is a provocative work of ecofiction and history. It tells the story of an environmentalist who takes her convictions to extreme lengths. I talked to Collins about the book and why he decided to take on a novel after writing several books about income inequality and the common good. Uh, and basically it's the story of a uh 
of a woman named Ray Kelleher, and she's a lifelong environmentalist uh, and, and a kind of a activist in sort of the death with dignity movement. Um, and it's not a spoiler alert to say at the beginning of the story, she's, she, uh, uh, she's learning, she's learned she has a terminal illness. She decides to go out uh, taking her own life and in a shocking action, taking the life of the CEO of a fossil fuel company uh, who she blames and holds responsible for delaying humanity's response to climate disruption. And then the novel sort of jumps forward seven years to sort of what impact that's had. And then it goes back uh, 40 years to who, why did she do this? You know, what was it in her life that formed her to, to take that decision? So that, that's sort of the sweep of the story. But, you know, in addition to trying to tell a good story um, with interesting characters, uh, I also, you know, I'm interested in these themes of how is it that we face this impossible news, this moment that we're in. You're not either condemning her or making excuses for her. You just give us the context of her life. So it's kind of up to the reader to decide. Yeah, and I think that that is, uh, you know, part of the prov provocative part of the story is, well, it is, it is shocking. Uh, why would somebody do this? Particularly somebody who, who grew up with elders who were very committed to nonviolence and where she herself was uh, kind of, of an activist, but very engaged in respectful, nonviolent direct action sometimes. Um, but, you know, it, it, uh, I think I try to realistically show what would be the blowback. And actually her, her partner, later her husband, Reggie Donovan, or uh, Reggie Donahue, kind of condemns her and, and, and discourages her from even thinking about doing this at one point. And says, you know, it's going to be huge blowback and criminalization of dissent, and it's misguided. And and he's right, you know. And I think that 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 sort of un, uh, unspools as he goes into the future. But there's a way in which her witness also kind of focuses people's attention on the fossil fuel industry and their their powerful role in kind of locking us in to the trajectory we're on. And so. Um, you know, at the very end, her daughter, adopted daughter sort of says, you know, what, what my, what, what Ray did was wrong, but uh, what will you do to take a bold action in the face of this moment we're in to, to save Mother Earth? Um, and that is the invitation, I guess, and the provocation of this novel. It's almost hard to imagine having a child and killing, your, doing this and, and then killing yourself. What's that phrase? The, the the sins of your parents are visited on the next generation, or whatever. There's a little element of that, but um, Ray is somebody who believes uh, that there is that that uh, there are ancestors that we live on, that we're all part of a kind of great web, and on some level, she believes that uh, Alex, who's not actually her her biological daughter, but somebody who she treats as a daughter, uh, will be protected and wants her to be protected and will work from the other side to protect her and, and, and help guide her. But mm -hmm. uh, not everybody shares that <laughs> confidence, but in in Ray's case, I think she's, she's one of those folks who, who kind of feels like she's part of the web of creation and trusts uh, in the wisdom of the ancestors. 
But there are a lot of references in the book about um, change happening in the wider society um, and how important that is. And also the local part where they're in this Vermont community. Um, you really do focus on this local action, why it's important. Well, I think in this moment, uh, it's one of the places where we have some agency, you know, so you, you know, as much as we understand that climate disruption and, and the sort of a lot of, like you could call it the poly crisis, the economic democracy and ecological crisis we're living through, they're part of complex systems where it's very hard to sort of figure out where do you, where does one act? Where do you intervene? Where do you try to make a difference? Whereas I think we can see, okay, well, we know we need to consume less. We need to live closer to the land. We need to um, grow our as much of our own food and calories locally and within a short distance. Uh, we need to relocalize our economies and practice mutual aid and draw on ourselves for culture and celebration and entertainment. And so, you know, and, and Ray is a big believer in that. She's kind of the life of the party. You know, she's she's the one who remembers everybody's birthday. You know, Mary, if you, you know, she would be, you know, she would organize your birthday party <laughs> and get everybody, you know, know what your favorite cake was and the music that you liked. And, you know, she that's the kind of person she is. And she also believes, you know, we shouldn't be so isolated. And that, and as we know, many people, uh, and, and it's an epidemic of loneliness and isolation in our culture. Um, so to create opportunities for people to be connected and also think about death and dying in a less fearful way. Uh, you know, she thinks that like our inability to think about climate change and the future and face the future is very connected to our sort of death phobia and our inability to think about our own passage. And she wants to kind of disrupt that uh, and, and, and be direct. And, and, and so, yeah, but I think that and what was kind of fun is to look at the things that I think people are doing in their local communities and then sort of imagine how that might play out over seven years in a positive way uh, mm. so that it's not all dystopian future. There's, there's a lot we're doing that as, as we build upon it will make for, uh, uh, will, will improve our lives as we face a disrupted future or whatever that brings. It does seem like since the pandemic, that's gotten worse. And I feel like, uh, you know, we have more homeless people. We have more people on streets in cities. Um, I just feel like it has created a real like speeding up of this. What do you think? I see the same thing. I see kind of like a, a hyper acceleration of inequality. It, it, it is, it's subjectively happening as best as we can tell. More and more of the society's wealth and treasure is kind of being funneled upwards, not, not to the, the richest 1%, but the richest one-tenth of 1%, uh, the billionaire class and people with, you know, say $30 million or more, they're seeing their assets just accelerate. Not everybody, but but overall is a trend, not just in the US, but globally. So there's a way in which the economy is now rigged to extract more of the commonwealth and, and put it in fewer hands. And that is really one of the contexts for you know how we go forward. And that it's not just a concentration of wealth, it's a concentration of power. And uh, you know, in the case of this story, it's looking at the concentrated power of the fossil fuel industry 
to kind of get their way. Uh, I mean, we've even just been through this this kind of charade around Congress raising the debt ceiling so that we can borrow money to pay for basic services. So in the debt ceiling negotiation, what did uh, what what was one of the outcomes? The dismantling, the weakening of the Internal Revenue Service to enforce tax laws against and, and, and oversight of the wealthy, and the inclusion of the Mountain Valley Pipeline, a frack gas pipeline in Virginia. Yeah, that 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 though that was what uh, you know. So even in the debate over the deficit, the fossil fuel industry is getting its way with our legislative system, and that's. That's what would lead someone like Ray Kelleher, my fictional lead character, to say they're not going to stop themselves. They're in incapable of stopping themselves. We need to figure out other ways to intervene to stop these harms that are just being uh, rolled out in, as we sit here. You talk about a lot of um, disturbing issues in society, whether it's in your fiction or nonfiction. Do you ever get overwhelmed by all this? Absolutely. It, it, it is hard to think about what's, what's sort of the path forward here. Maybe in my fictional life, I'm trying to live into or envision how things could be and even things could be for myself. You know, maybe I could live in a more connected community with celebration. Uh, I could learn ways of facing the future and facing uh, dying uh, and mortality in new ways. So I th and I think celebration, uh, you know, in a kind of local face to face community is very powerful, you know, so I think there's ways that we can face the future together. I think if we sort of sit alone and look at our computers and think about the bad news, we, we will get depressed and we will get immobilized. So we sort of have to go out and join others. And you know, two nights ago, I was at a meeting of uh, 30 people who are looking, there's an airport near where I live that only serves private jets. And there's a, you know, as we know, like you, you need to have a hundred million dollars to own your own private jet. I mean, you're, these are used by the most wealthy people on the planet. And there's a plan to expand this airport four times to accommodate four times as many private jets. Turns out every wealthy billionaire wants to have their own private jet and they need a place to park it. <laughs> they want to come to west, the western suburbs of Boston. That was Chuck Collins. His recently published first novel, Alter to an Erupting Sun, follows the life of a woman who gives the ultimate sacrifice to fight climate change. Collins is a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C., where he directs the program on inequality and the common good. Collins is the great-grandson of Oscar F. Meyer, the founder of Oscar Meyer Meat Processing Brand. Collins first gained public attention in 1985 when he gave his inheritance of $500,000 to several foundations at the age of 26. When his libertarian conservative father, Edward, learned of his intentions, he was afraid his son was a Marxist. Collins instead stated he would rather be called a Gandhian or Christian and later left to live in a commune. Summer in Sioux City means festivals and music events. Siouxland Public Media's Sheila Brummer reached out to local expert Brent Stockton for the inside scoop and information on the hottest artists coming to town. Well, there's just a lot going on and, uh, you know, 
really going to be a lot of great live music with all the different events happening in Sioux City this summer. And I know that you're instrumental um, when it comes to many of these events. The Downtown Live Concert Series, it just launched with the Chris Lager Band, but you still have many different acts coming, many different genres, all the way through the middle of August. Right. Yeah, we've got, you know, everything from, you know, the legendary John Primer and the Real Deal Blues Band. Hard time. Hard time and trouble. John just recently was named uh, Male Artist of the Year by the uh, International Blues Society. Uh, also was just inducted into the Chicago Blues Hall of Fame. So, I mean, it, that's a really, really big deal to have him in. And, and all the way from, you know, that and a band called Kalita and the Super Yama Band, which I am most excited about. Uh, it's kind of Afrobeat, uh, something that will be really unique for people in Sioux City to get to see an act like that. And uh, and then, you know, we've got some bluegrass, and uh, we've got also Toronzo Cannon coming out of Chicago. And so a lot of really great acts. Local act too, Ghost Cat. And Ghost Cat, absolutely, which we're also really excited about as well. We sit down and we wait, we sit down and we contemplate. And we have Saturday in the Park. It's going to be here before we know it. A great annual festival at Grandview Park, and it's free. Yeah, that's just it. You know, I mean, there's only a handful of free festivals like this even left in the United States. And, uh, you know, thanks to, you know, all the sponsors and all the individuals and everything that come together to make that event happen and really make a lot of these events happen downtown live. Uh, you know, it just couldn't happen without the support that we get. And that's something that I always like to stress is, uh, you know, there's a lot of cities that don't have what Sioux City does in the line of, of individuals and, and corporations that will step up and, and make donations to make this stuff happen. No, it's great. And the lineup for Saturday in the Park. I don't know how you beat it. Because <laughs> you have I Earth, mean, Wind, and Fire and, and, and more than that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you have Earth, Wind, and Fire, of course. You've got Samantha Fish, and she's also bringing Jesse Dayton along with her, which kind of was expected, I guess. Dark shadows standing in a corner. Big party, but no one there to warn her. Your kiss is like a death wish. And then an act that I may be most excited to see is War and Treaty. And uh, they're... They're going to be on uh, kind of at that hot spot in the afternoon about 5 o'clock, and it's it's just going to be a really, really fun day. Tell me what's wrong. Who hurt you, baby? And it might be a hot spot. You never know. It might literally be hot. Um, well, it would it would not be unlike Saturday in the Park if it wasn't real hot. So, And and you hear them quite often on, on World Cafe. They play War and Treaty. Right, yep. You until the sorrow is gone, never to return. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really excited to see them live. And when it comes to, to figuring out, like, what to book, what to bring to Sioux Line, what what kind of things are, are put into that equation? Well, you know, I mean, a lot of it... Is you know you try to kind of stay in what I guess you'd maybe call like a roots um, uh, genre kind of you know which which crosses a lot of different genres everything from you know blues to rock to bluegrass but not get anything you know too far out there but uh, it, and also a lot of it you know you've heard me talk about it before a lot of it all comes down to timing a lot of it is just about when acts are in the Midwest and when you can get them to come in and, and do a show. And sometimes it's it's difficult now because you have some of the big companies that you know they want certain acts only doing their tour right. throughout the country. So that could be a challenge as well. It is, you know, and especially when you get into acts the level of, of you know, Earth, Wind, and Fire. And uh, 
um, and even Samantha Fish and all these acts, you know, that are at, get to that bigger level. And, and a lot of the acts that we get, even at Downtown Live and stuff, it's just getting to be a little more difficult. But it's, uh, you know, it's really kind of fun. And it, it's uh, it's fun to go out and, and research these acts and find out where they're at and find out what's going on and, and kind of try to put the pieces together. When it comes to Saturday in the Park and even Downtown Live, is there a performance or a group that really really stands out in your mind that really maybe engaged the audience or the music that really touched you? <laughs> Boy, that's tough. Um, there, there's an awful lot of them. I mean, one for me personally that, that performed at Saturday in the Park uh, several years ago would have to be the Bodines. A lot of folks probably don't even know who they are, but... Uh, um, really had a spot for those guys in my heart and I mean I love that act and it was they're they're not together even anymore right now or not the original act anymore and uh so that would be a big one then and, and then of course you know getting to see I mean it's Saturday in the park there's so many you know the chance to get to see Aretha Franklin um you know I was on stage I stood off I was on the wings of the stage when she was on on there you know and those kind of things are are great memories to have and and you know in downtown live you know we've had a lot of great acts too you know shamar allen is certainly one of them uh, out of new orleans um who will be back in sioux city at vanguard uh in uh, i believe in november i think so uh uh there's, there's been a lot so many if you want that authentic truth i got you here you go also, Vanguard Arts, you want to forget about an, another um, organization that you helped launch, you launched. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, in a group of us, you know, we're really fortunate there again, too, to have the support we've got. And, and uh, you know, when uh, with, with Vanguard Arts, you know, it was kind of just a uh, idea of three or four of us that kind of thought something like that might be able to come together with and seek out, you know, individuals that wanted to be part of, you know, kind of like-minded people that wanted to be part of something like Vanguard Arts. And uh, it's really grown into a great family of music. And, uh, uh, you know, we... Uh, of course, sponsor the Alley Art Festival, which also brings a lot of really great music this summer, too. That'll be kind of the that's kind of becoming the end of the thing uh, the last few years. This is our fifth year of the Alley Arts Festival, and uh, it'll be September 23rd. So, you know, we bring, uh, you know, that's another chance for people to get out, get outside and kind of late summer, early fall kind of thing. It's an amazing event. And Brent, thank you so much for all you do for our community. We're lucky to have you. Well, thank you so much. And we really appreciate all your support. That's Brent Stockton talking about the music scene this summer in Sioux City with the Downtown Live Concert Series and Saturday in the Park coming up on July 1st at Grandview Park with the headliner group Earth, Wind & Fire. Here's their song, September, that was released in 1978. I remember that. It was added to the Library of Congress National Recording Registry 40 years later. Thanks so much to Sheila Brummer and Steve Smith for their help with the program. I'm Mary Hartnett. We hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time around.